I have picked up a bit of a cold, I think, so often after the service, I'm usually down front, hanging out, talking, praying, goofing around, whatever, um, but this morning I won't be, just because you don't want to catch this, whatever it is I've got, um, that wouldn't be uh, kind of like an opposite blessing thing, so we don't go on that road. Um, I remember my uh, first church that I went to. Uh, it was a smaller church. They didn't have much money. They were quick to tell me that though they didn't have much money, it was still a great place for me to come. And uh, one of the things that they said is they said, you know, um, if in a couple of years the church is, is, is moving forward, what we really want to do is we want to invest in you. We want to pay for your further education. That's what we really want to do. We want to take care of that for you and bless you that way and build the kingdom. And yada, yada. Well, I thought that sounded like a great plan. Okay. Well, two years down the road, um, I, church is growing. I uh, was not nothing to do with me. I just kind of hopped on the, the train going the right direction. But I knock on the, the senior pastor's door and I say, you know, it's been two years and church is doing well. And that education thing, I think it's time. And he kind of frowned and got this big furrow, you know. I said, huh, well, let, me, let me think about this. So he went in his office. Like two weeks later, he comes out and he says, okay, here, here's the deal. Um, we want to help you with your education, and, and, and certainly, and we don't want you to feel that you should pay us back immediately. And so what we want you to do, we want, we want this is the way we're going to do this. You know, once you graduate, then what we'll do is we will forgive uh, your debt to us at 20% a year. And so after you graduate, if you stay with us for five years, it will all be taken care of. Well, it's not a bad deal. That's not a bad deal. But it's not what we agreed on. And so I told him, I said, yeah, well, hang on, wait a the, Way back when, when you were singing the first verse, it was, yeah, we're going to invest in you, we want to do this for you, and we want to bless and take care of you, and we want to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do it. But now, you're singing the second verse, which is howevers, and buts, and caveats, and all this other stuff. I go, hey, the, the, the two don't match, how come you weren't singing this earlier? This is kind of a common thing for us in this world, is it not? You, you get the first verse sung to you, and then after you've committed or after you're in, you get this second verse. A big way we see this is with medical advertisements, right, for medicines, where they talk about this, this great, you know, it's a miracle medicine. You know, it's a new, new drug from heaven, and it's going to slow down whatever's going too fast, or it's going to speed up whatever's going too slow, and it's going to give you a quality of life that there's no way in the world you could possibly have without this new drug. And you, you look at this and the people in the advertisements are smiling and they're happy and they're dressed well and they're, they're handsome and you go, man, I need to get me some of that stuff. That's fantastic. And then <clears throat> the FDA requires they sing the second verse, don't they? And what do they say? Uh, well, they say, well, this is a phenomenal drug, however. Uh, you can't take it if you're pregnant or if you're a nursing mom. Or if you have problems with heart issues, or if you're taking any of the medications, or you have problems with breathing issues, or you're thinking issues, and don't, 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 don't operate heavy machinery if you're taking this, and don't, don't drive if you're taking this, and it could cause drowsiness, or it could cause hypertension, or it could cause, uh, you know, dizziness, or, or shortness of breath, or, or kidney failure, or, or heart, heart disease, or, or, or depression, or constipation. You go, whoa, 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 whoa! Man, man, this thing sounded like it was made in heaven earlier! But now, you know where it sounds like it's made. So this is just not the same. I don't know if I'm interested in this. In our series that we've been going through, when the, the silence was broken, we've been looking at the Christmas story through uh, Acts, through the eyes of, of St. Luke. And so far up to this point, everything's been good. 
Now, not nothing negative whatsoever. The angel comes to to Zechariah, and it's going to be a great thing, and it's a new day, and everybody's been waiting for this for hundreds of years, and finally it's time, the redemption of Israel, it's time, it's right now, it's the time. And the angel goes to Mary and says, so you're going to have a, a baby, and it's going to be the son of the Most High, and he's going to save his people from their sins, and it's going to rescue Israel. It's a good thing. And then Mary goes to Elizabeth's. And there's joy and there's excitement and John the Baptist is leaping in the womb and Elizabeth is excited and it's a good thing. And then you got the angels and uh, coming to the shepherds, right? And angel choruses and myriads of angels and, and what are they singing? No, no, no caveats, no howevers or buts. We're talking peace on earth and joy and good news to all men and this is it's a good thing. Now, after this episode that we're going to look at this morning, God is going to go silent again. 30 years. The last 18 months have been filled with angelic manifestations and miraculous stuff. And it's just been a supernatural world. It's been a very busy time. Very, very fascinating. But it's going to go quiet again. But just before God goes quiet, Luke thinks there's one more voice that needs to, to be added to this cantata. And this guy's voice will sing the second verse. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me, Luke chapter 2. Very fascinating. He's not looking, Luke's not looking, nor none of the gospel writers looking to just write a history. They are choosing very specifically what they put in and what they don't put in based on what they're trying to accomplish. Now let me give you the background a little bit of uh, 5 BC ancient Israel. Uh, this is a fascinating nation, if you think about it. Only nation in the whole world that was, was, was promised a theocracy. I mean, God said, I will rule you. I will be in charge. You know, if God is in charge, it should be okay, right? This is only nation. Yet, at this point, they're apostate. They're uh, cold. They are, are just uh, hypocritical. They just, everything is, wheels have fallen off spiritually uh, for, for the nation of Israel. You've got several elements, categories of spiritual leadership going on right now. First of all, you've got the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are the guys that have turned their religious, uh, their, their communi- communication with God into a machine. It's just a system. Matter of fact, you really can't do it unless you're full-time, unless you're a Pharisee. If you're an average Joe, you just really can't pull it together. These guys are doctrinally solid. Jesus said, you know, believe what they're saying, just don't do what they're doing. They're they're hypocritical, legalistic type folk. Then you've got the Sadducees. And these guys were the majority spiritual leaders. These guys were like your mainline, little bit liberal type folk. Didn't really hold to the word of God. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in miracles. Just very, very liberal type folk. These were the majority of the spiritual leaders of of Israel at this point. Third group were called the Zealots. And the Zealots were more political than they were spiritual. These were your Israeli terrorist guys. These were folk who just hated Rome. All Jews hated Rome. But these guys hated Rome, and we're going to do something about it. Uh, you know, God help the Roman, lone Roman soldier who was walking through a dark road at night, uh, was surrounded by the zealots. They would take him on. They would, they would let him have what for? A fourth group were the Essenes. And the Essenes were like your Israeli monks. They just said, oh, the fui with all you guys. We're going to go out in the desert and start a commune and hang out and away from everybody. We're going to go, go do our own thing. There was a fifth category, though. 
Not an official category, but important because the gentleman we're going to look at today was in this category. And this is a group called the righteous. Joseph, Mary and Joseph. Joseph was in this category. The guy we're going to look at today was in this category. And these were the folk who truly believed God. They were faithful to him. They were faithful to his word. Uh, they were looking for him to fulfill his promises. So let's let's start in on verse 21 of Luke chapter 2. It says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. I had a circumcision party for Jesus too, but it was probably a much smaller one than John's because they were kind of new in town, didn't have a lot of people. We traditionally think that, uh, I mean, uh, work with me as far as what I'm saying here. Mary and Joseph go into the stable December 24th, that night. Sometime that evening, early morning, Jesus is born Christmas Day. But where did they go December 26th? How about December 27th? December 20th. Where were they? You know, at my, at my house, my manger scene. Week after Christmas, Jesus is still in the manger, in the stable. He's still there. And then I take the thing up and we box it up and we, he's still in the manger all year. And then come next year, we pull it out and he's in the manger again. He's in a couple of weeks before Christmas and then a couple of weeks after. He never gets out of the manger. He never gets out of the stable. But where did he go December 26th? Now Mary and Joseph have some business they can have to attend to. They can't just go back to Nazareth. Plus Mary's condition, she needs to heal for a little bit before she makes that track back. And so where do they do? Will they hang out in the barn for forever? I mean, they kind of just stopped off there, right? Because Mary was having contractions. There was no room in the inn. All right, let's just fall, fall, find our, our way in here, maybe for a little privacy. But they probably weren't going to stay in there for forever. The guy who owns the barn and the animals probably going to want their feed trough back. And so I'm guessing that, that he was looking, Joseph began looking, uh, beating the pavement the next day, looking for rental or something, some place in Bethlehem. Maybe they know somebody, they, distant relatives, they should have some there. Who could give them a place? So they find a place. That's where that's that's where they that's where they hang. Um, verse twenty-two. It says, "When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord: Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord: a pair of doves or two young pigeons." Now it's referring to two different rituals here. First ritual was the um, consecration, the uh, cleanliness of Mary herself. According to Leviticus chapter 12, once a gal has a baby boy, she's unclean for 40 days. 40 days she can't go to the temple, she's unclean. But after that time, she needs to go to the temple. And according to Leviticus 12, she's got to offer two sacrifices, a lamb, which is going to be your burnt uh, offering, and then a in a bird of some sort, and that will be your sin offering. That's what she was supposed to do. But then Leviticus 12 says, but in case they're really poor, they're just to say they're dirt poor, they don't have anything, they can give you two birds. So Mary and Joseph gave two birds. Now this is one of the several pieces to the puzzle that makes us think that the Magi, the wise men, did not come that night to the manger in the stable. Had they done that, then Joseph would be sporting a lot of gold, frankincense, and more. He could have purchased a little lamb if he needed one, but he, he, he did not. And so 
they are, are there. Now, this is interesting. Uh, the second thing that they're, the second ritual that they're going to was the dedication of Jesus. Now, we'd like to hold this out as, as proof for the, the child dedication. I'm all for child dedication, but we can't go to this text. Because the, 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 Jesus was dedicated here at the temple, but none of the girls were dedicated. And none of the other brothers would be dedicated. Mary and Joseph are here for a a legal thing. I mean, this is an obligatory legal law issue. They have to be there. Remember the the Exodus, uh, the ten plagues, and the last plague. Uh, The firstborn of the house was the firstborn of the house was going to die, right? And he had to take the lamb and put the blood, and then the angel of death would pass over, and the firstborn would be saved. From that point on. God says, the firstborn of every, the firstborn of all y'all belongs to me. And therefore, you need to dedicate your firstborn male to me. This was a, a, a legal issue. This is part of the law. Now, this is, aside, this is a fascinating thing because your firstborn male would be the one that most of your inheritance would go to. It's how you would live on after you died through your family. They would, they would, carry on in your stead. Firstborn male, pretty important in this culture. And and God is saying, firstborn male, it's not about you. Not about you. It's not about you carrying on and about your name continuing on. No, 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 no. You need to keep in mind, it's about my glory. It's about me. And it's just another reminder in their in their system of, of how God is the one who's to be honored. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Um, now, it's interesting, too, that Mary and Joseph actually are on a divine appointment. They're going to meet somebody. Somebody that God has set up for them to meet. Somebody that they need to hear what he's going to say. Because what he's going to say is going to change their view or alter their view of this baby that they have. I believe that what he's going to say is going to, to go with them and is actually going to... Uh, help Mary substantially 33 years from now when everything goes south. Um, it's important that they meet this guy. But they're not going there to meet this guy. They don't even know about this guy. They're just going there to obey the law. This is, this is a real important principle for us. When we obey God's word, we are put in a position to receive blessings of God. If Mary and Joseph would not have gone, they would not have obeyed the law here. They would not have run into Simeon, kind of accidentally, serendipitously, who shared with them things that they needed for down the road. When you and I decide not to obey, just a little thing, we're not going to obey, we suddenly take ourselves, put ourselves in a position where we're going to be missing other blessings that God has for us, other things that we need in order to be equipped for what he has for us down the road. Really substantial, substantial stuff here. And they're going to meet a couple people, actually, who are actually foils of the shepherds. These these people that they're about to meet are opposite shepherds. They are as clean as the shepherds were unclean. Let's look at the, the first one. Actually, we'll start with the second one. Look at verse 36. There was also a prophetess. Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Anna's got her pedigree there. Anna is a spiritual leader here. She's got an official office. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. 
can't say she was a widow for 84 years, which would have meant that this gal was 110 years old around. So this, either way, Anna was up there in age. She never left the temple. Remember, the shepherds couldn't even go. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of of Jerusalem. Anna, second person, actually the first one that they meet, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, we don't know Simeon's occupation. He wasn't a priest. We know that. Uh, we don't know Simeon's age. We assume he was an old guy, but eh, there's nothing here says that he was an old guy. We don't know. But Scripture tells us what we do need to know about Simeon. <clears throat> Real important. We have a lot of questions about God's word, about about. All kinds of stuff that God doesn't answer. Uh, but he tells us everything we need to know. And here he tells us all we need to know about Simeon. Simeon was a righteous, he was righteous and devout. Now post-cross, we would say by right, righteous is not just doing good stuff and not doing bad stuff. I mean, Pharisees did that, right? Uh, it, was, it goes beyond that. Righteous is... Again, post-cross, we would say he was justified. He was saved. Uh, Simeon had, he honored God's word, but out of a, out of a relationship with God. Pharisees sought to honor God's word. They didn't care about a relationship with God. Uh, Simeon was, was in relationship with God. He was, he was righteous. But he was also devout, which would mean he was sanctified. He was applying God's word to his life. He was trying to live this out on a regular basis. And what was he doing here? A couple different things you notice. He was led by the Holy Spirit. Luke is a major, major proponent of the Holy Spirit, by the way. Uh, remember, right at the very beginning, Gabriel talks to Zechariah, Holy Spirit's in the middle of that one. John the Baptist is going to be born. John's got filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. Uh, Jesus, Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. John filled with the Holy Spirit, kicks in her womb. The Holy Spirit's all over this, this place. And what's going to happen is as soon as Jesus starts his earthly ministry, just in a couple of, of paragraphs down, he's, led, he's, he's baptized first, then gets the Holy Spirit. Then he's led out to the desert by the Holy Spirit. Luke has the Holy Spirit all over this place. And what he's saying to, to Theophilus is, Theophilus, God is all over this. You gotta know, this is not just a series of events. God is all over this thing. Also, Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting. What is, what does it mean to wait? I get kind of impatient when I go, what does it mean to wait? It's either sit still or looking forward expectantly. Trusting that something is going to happen. Good or bad, but it's expecting something to happen. He was expecting the consolation or the comforting or the revival of the nation of Israel. Now, Simeon is not a rich man. Uh, Simeon is not, does not have, uh, is not living high on the hog, but what is, he's obsessed with is the spiritual condition of his people. Simeon's a no-name. Simeon is a, uh, uh, he's not a prophetess like Anna. 
He, he doesn't have that office. He's not a mover and shaker, most probably. He's not a highly influential guy. He's just a old man who's righteous and devout. And because he is, you know what? Simeon's going to see Jesus. I love this because I don't have to have the gifts. I don't have to have a special unction. I don't have to, to always nail it and, and make sure my wisdom is, is beyond everyone else. If you're righteous and you're devout, you see Jesus. Didn't God say this in the Old Testament? If you seek for me with all your heart, you'll find me. This is a, a, this is a, 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 common, a common thread. And this is who Simeon was. This is what was going on. Now it says that, that moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. You know, I wonder how Simeon got a hold of him because the temple is not like going to prayer meeting in your church of 50 people on a Wednesday night way back when. The temple is like going to the mall on Black Friday. I mean, it's just a crazy. There would be all kinds of women and children everywhere. And somehow Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, recognized that this specific baby, this was it. This was the Messiah. And somehow Mary... Feel safe with Simeon to hand her baby over to this, this guy. So, so Simeon takes Jesus and he praises God. He prays and he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. I love this because they marveled. <clears throat> this is the first time this word appears here. It means mind blown. Uh, think about this for a second. Mary and Joseph both met an angel. Have you met an angel? I've never met an angel. But they didn't marvel over that. At least it doesn't say that. Mary was told, Mary, you're going to have a baby. You've never known a man, but you're going to have a baby. She doesn't marvel over that one. I wouldn't mind marveling over that. He's going to be the son of God. That's something to marvel over. Uh, the, the baby's just born and the, the stable's crashed by these sweaty shepherds who are talking about myriads of angels and, and, and all this, this. They didn't marvel over that. But somehow, what this guy says is something that they marvel over. What in the world did he say? Well, if you look at his words, I think that the line that threw them for a loop was verse 32. It says, He's going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. The Jewish people hated the Gentiles. Remember Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah was not interested in going to Nineveh. Represented the nation, no way. We're not going to the Gentiles. Thank you very much. Uh, the Gentiles. Keep in mind, everyone is not, we're not in a pluralistic, everybody's tolerant of each other type of a situation. Uh, the, the Gentiles had their gods and it wasn't Jehovah. And if they won, it proved that their God is superior to your God, Jehovah. And they were, Israel was, was, uh, exiled by the Assyrians and exiled by the Babylonians. They were exiled by the Gentiles. 
It was the Gentiles who came in with swords and killed their, their families. It was the Gentiles that, according to Nehemiah 13, that caused Israel to be corrupted because of Solomon's heart because he married all these Gentile gals and got into worshiping their gods. Well, that caused the nation to split and that caused uh, uh, both nations, north and south, to end, end up falling. You, you didn't like the Gentiles. You didn't care for the Gentiles. Rome made sure that, that Israel knew that they were subservient and they were inferior. You didn't care for the Gentiles were the enemies. Didn't Zechariah say that this Messiah is going to conquer their enemies? And they're saying, no, 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 no. You don't understand. He's going to reign in, in, in the place of his father, David. Very, very Jewish. Davidic covenant, very Jewish. And he's going to redeem Israel. Very, very, very Jewish. Very, very, very Israel. And Simeon's looking at them saying, you don't have a clue who you hold, do you? God is not interested in redeeming a little piece of real estate in the Mideast. We're talking world domination here. You know, I can imagine they had not thought of that before. He was here to save the Jews. He would save our people from our sins, the world. I marveled. Amazing, amazing story. And then Simeon, and this is where he sings the second verse. Now he was praying. Now he stops and he looks right at Mary, looks at mom in the eyes. And he says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Again, keep in mind, everything up to this point has been happy, cheery, sunshine, roses and rainbows. And What is this about? Are you a party pooper? Now he looks at Mary because... Uh, Joseph is going to die somewhere between Jesus' 12th birthday and 30th birthday. He's not going to live to see all of oh, how Jesus was treated and what all transpired. But Mary, another story. Hey, he says that the, the child is going to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. He says, oh, you're going to, this, this, this baby is going to create, create quite a stir, Mary, and be a sign that will be spoken against. That's not just words, you know, called names and stuff. Spoken against, it's referring to violence and viciousness. This child is destined for violence. It says that uh, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, how you approach Jesus, what you think about Jesus will reveal, does reveal what's going on inside. And then he says, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Two words for sword, there's an 18-inch dagger, and then there was the three, four-foot what you think of with gladiator-type swords, you know, this big, long, double-edged razor thing. That's the sword that he's referring to here. Says, this, Mary, is going to kill you. I wonder how Simeon knew this and what, how much he knew. Did he know this because the Holy Spirit shared with this with him as well? Did he know this because he just read Isaiah 53? What was What was... What did he know? What didn't he know? There's some crypticness to this, no question about it. But an ominous tone has been introduced. This is the very first black thread that is woven into the tapestry. And you say, why is this here? Well, two reasons, I think. One is, again, for Mary's sake. At this point... All Mary had heard is good stuff. This is going to be great. It's going to be a big party and it's going to win and take on the world. And Don't you know what Mary was thinking when things started to go south? People started rejecting Jesus. She watched her son being beaten, flogged, and crucified. 
these words had to just be ringing through her mind and haunting her. But also, I think Simeon was saying, Mary, when this happens, this does not negate everything else that's been said. The two are married here. They really are. The rescuing his people, saving his people, and the sword piercing your own soul and your own heart, the violence that will be done to him. They're one and the same. I think that also Luke is sharing this for the sake of Theophilus. Remember, that's the guy he's writing this whole thing to. Because uh, Theophilus, he's saying, Theophilus, you need to know that Jesus didn't just fail. This was planned. Uh, when I was in college, I went to, uh, not often, just a couple of times, to the Unification Church in downtown Chicago. <coughs> Excuse me. Unification Church is uh, uh, the Moonies. Uh, Big cult. Uh, I don't know what they've done since Sun Mung Moon has died. He died this past year. But they're, what they said is Jesus had failed. He's a good guy and all that, but he just failed. He was supposed to set up his kingdom and he didn't do it. And see, Sun Mung Moon was the, was the second advent of Christ and he was going to succeed. Now he's died. I don't know again. I don't know what they're doing with that. But, um, Jesus failed. And so what he's trying, I think what Luke is letting Theophilus know is you got, you need to know, Theophilus, when things go south, they were planned. That, that was part of the deal. Jesus didn't fail. That was, that was the way it was. That was what was set up. Down in verse 39, it says, When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Luke doesn't mention anything about hanging out in Bethlehem for a little bit longer to find the, the Magi. He doesn't mention anything about Herod and the slaughter of the innocents. And, and the, by the way, that, that short jaunt down to Egypt, he doesn't mention that. Matthew would mention that. But that wasn't particularly primary or key for the message he was trying to get across to Theophilus. He needs to get Jesus in Nazareth for this next pericope that will be coming up in, in a few moments. Um, let's wind this thing. Let's tie this thing together real quick. Luke chapter one. We started off the series with this. Why Luke was writing? And again, his purpose for Theophilus, his purpose for us, and what he's trying to accomplish. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the certainty of the things you've been taught. You know, but by the way, at this point, when he's writing, of course, uh, Simeon has died, and, and Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, John the Baptist, is gone. But there were some people still alive, no doubt, who were outside the temple when Zechariah came out and he couldn't speak and he was mute. No doubt there are some people that he investigated, eyewitnesses, he says, who were around when, when John's circumcision party happened, who were maybe there. It says that they went and they spread the word to the whole Judean countryside. Luke, no doubt, inter- interviewed these folk. Odds are high, Mary's still living at this point. He's interviewed Mary. It says the shepherds, what did they do after they, they went and they saw Jesus? They went and spread the word to everybody. No doubt Luke interviewed the, the, some of the shepherds who were still probably alive as well as the people who, who had heard. 
it's interesting. We don't know a whole lot about how Luke came to know Christ. We know he's probably the only Gentile who wrote scripture. He's got a Greek name. Why was he investigating carefully? I wonder if he had heard these things about Jesus and thought, you know what? I need to check this out. I better check this out. If this is true, the ramifications are huge. And so Luke investigated carefully, got done. He wrote a book, actually wrote two, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. More words than than any other New Testament author written by this Gentile guy because he investigated the claims of Christ. And you know, he's not alone. Simon Greenleaf was uh, born 1783. He was the uh, uh, royal uh, professor of law at Harvard. He was very instrumental in starting Harvard's law school and the development of it. Simon Greenleaf, though, was very discouraged with intelligent people who were talking about the resurrection of Christ. And so he decided that what he would do is he would take the laws of evidence and he would apply them to the resurrection just to see, because his goal was to write a book that debunked Christianity and silenced these people. When he got done, this is what what he says. He says, according to the jurisprudence of legal evidence, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the best supported event in all of history. Committed his life to Christ. Became a, wrote his book. It's called the, the Testimony of the Evangelist. You can buy it off of Amazon. Um, hard to read, but uh, certainly it's, it's there. Uh, proving that Christ really did rise from the dead. We could talk about Josh McDowell. When I was a kid, remember Josh McDowell? Uh, Josh McDowell was at school in Michigan and some campus crusaders were talking about Jesus and McDowell comes from a very dysfunctional home, lots of pain and hurt, made him angry that people would talk about Jesus. And so, so he challenged them. Well, they turned the corner, they turned the tables and they said, no, 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 we challenge you. Research it. We need you to carefully investigate this thing and then you tell us that it's all, you know, a bunch of malarkey. We're okay with that. So he said, fine. So he went on, left school for a couple of years. His research took him to Europe. It took him to the Middle East. When he got done, he did write his book. It was called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And in it, he said that, that any normal thinking, open-minded person who will look at the evidence will say, certainly, Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. The Bible is a supernatural book. Um, we can talk about Lee Strobel. 1980, Lee Strobel was an atheist who was an editor for the Chicago Tribune. He was trained in Ivy League, uh, trained in journalism and law. His wife started going to church. Uh, he thought she was getting into a cult, so he went to church with her. He heard about Jesus. <clears throat> he left an atheist, but he thought, wow, you know what? If this is true, this can have some pretty intense ramifications for my life. So he went into the, the journalistic mode and began to carefully investigate. One year, nine months later, he writes this. He says, In the light of the torrent of evidence flowing in the direction of the truth of Christianity, it would require more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. To be an atheist, I would have to swim upstream against the torrent of evidence pointing toward the truth of Jesus Christ, and I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law to respond to truth. 
And we could talk about Ravi Zacharias, right? Uh, intellectual Indian atheist until he began to investigate the claims of Christ. He became still one of the leading apologists for Christianity today. We could talk about C.S. Lewis, atheistic professor at Oxford until he started investigating the claims of Christ. And what did he do? He, he ended up writing multiple books, uh, apologetics, giving his life to Christ and showing how Christ is the Son of God. We could talk about Chuck Colson, who's Nixon's hatchet man. Remember that the Watergate scandal for you? You little bit older folk. Uh, he's in prison for this. And someone starts telling him about Jesus. And he decides, I better check this out. If this is real. And he becomes probably today, uh, even though he's gone now, uh, one who has done more to bring the gospel to the incarcerated in the United States than any other person. Uh, I'm not so sure that, that Colson, a politician, decided to get into ministry just because... I'm not so sure that, that Ravi, an Indian intellectual, decided he would become a Christian apologist just because. C.S. Lewis decided that he would, he would go out with his Christian faith, which would subject him to all kinds of ridicule, just because. Now, these guys investigated it completely and came to that point. Now, here's my, my concern, here's my question. I wonder if some of us here have been riding on the, the coattails of our parents' faith. Maybe our whole lives. Maybe we're older, but you know, we're still just coming to church because our parents came to church and we're still riding the coattails of our parents' faith. But do you really believe it? Are you assured that this is true? Because when you are, you know what? There's this all full-scale abandonment that you find with Ravi, that you find with Chuck Colson, that you find with, with C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell. There's just a full-blown abandonment when you're convinced this is true. Now, the ramifications of whether or not Jesus is real are massive, and you owe it to yourself to investigate it completely. And so if, in fact, maybe you're just coming and you're not sure about the God thing, let me give you some resources C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, a little more philosophical, but excellent, excellent, excellent. You've got R.C. Uh, or Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter. It's a thin book, but an excellent book of why he came to the conclusions that he came to. Uh, of course, Ravi has a lot of, a lot of books out, but see, uh, uh, Strobel has his Case for Christ. Excellent, excellent book. You, you cannot, if you have not made a decision here, I would never ask you to, to throw uh, your mind away and just choose and do. I don't think God would, would ask you for that. But you do have to make a commitment that I'm going to investigate fully. I'm relatively convinced that if you do that with an open mind, you'll find you're in the same place that C.S. Lewis was in, that uh, Simon Greenleaf was in, that Josh McDowell was in. It will be there for you. Now, Doug is going to come out in just a moment and sing. I'm going to pray for us. And Doug's going to come out and sing. Here's what I would ask you to do. While Doug is singing, would you listen to the words? And would you ask yourself, maybe the Christmas time is appropriate here, uh, the babe in the manger, I know he's the Savior of the world, but is he my Savior? Have I surrendered my life to him? Am I still holding back? Would you ask yourself that? Because today, maybe today is is your day.